welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Neil Malhotra to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. Neil is the Edith M. Cornell Professor of Political Economy at Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Louise and Claude N. Rosenberg Jr. Director of the Centre for Social Innovation, where he has developed a curriculum focused on social issues, impact measurement and mission-driven business. Neil recently edited Frontiers in Social Innovation, the essential handbook for creating, deploying, sustaining creative solutions to systemic problems. Thank you very much, Neil, for joining me today on the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about uh, some of the, the ideas in, in uh, the recent book, which you've edited, Frontiers of Social Innovation, very wide ranging and deep uh, content there. Um, before we, we dive into that, maybe if you can just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Neil Malhotra. Um, I'm a professor in the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where I direct the Center for Social Innovation. And one of our motivations for putting together this book was to draw upon the expertise of thought leaders, practitioners, thinkers in the space of social innovation to really give a deep dive on what we know and what are the cutting edge issues. And you know, at Stanford, we get requests all the time, which is, you know, can we get advice? Can you help us out? And we didn't really have a way of scaling that. So kind of the book is our solution, which is to share our knowledge with the world and not keep it cloistered in the ivory tower. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, clearly the whole area of, of social innovation and um, social entrepreneurship, social change uh, is is uh, a, a very rich area. There's been a lot going on and it's a tremendous momentum, I guess, around uh, using uh, organizations and uh, some for profit and various different hybrid models in order to deal with social problems and, and environmental problems of, of which we've uh, many. Um, before discussing some of the trends that you think are important, what's on your mind, particularly at the moment, in terms of looking when you look around at that landscape? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think kind of you touched on one interesting thing, which is that if you looked at the landscape 20 years ago, it was thought to be the purview of nonprofits, maybe government. And we have kind of a much more diverse set of organizational models for making social change. So there's obviously for profit, but I think there's a lot more new concepts like benefit corporations and B Corps. And I think that's very exciting. I think at the same time, you know, there are challenges to the social entrepreneurial and philanthropic world. Um, you know, many people know of the famous book, Winners Take All, and it's really kind of a polemic challenge to the world explored in our book, which is to argue that, you know, kind of the philanthropy world is not the proper substitute for government regulation and reform. And I think our perspective is, is that that's true, but that this is not either or, that while we're waiting for government and structural solutions, uh, social entrepreneurship, impact investing can fill an important need that tangibly improves people's lives on the ground. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and um, I did some interviews uh, for a podcast series for Ashoka 
on systems change and um is which is very much where they're coming from when they look at uh social entrepreneurship generally but uh very interesting work there in terms of uh uh i guess multifaceted approaches to dealing with things someone like kendis paris who set up truckers against trafficking which has you know had a huge success in terms of uh getting uh, policies enacted in America uh, to deal with uh, the issues of uh, you know, prostitution in the transport industry and, you know, I guess, t- turning uh, uh, people into change makers and, and, and the way she, 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 she generated change uh, at a policy level. So that, that is quite interesting because, um, as you say, they're not, it's not mutually exclusive um, uh, indeed. Uh, what what uh, do you think is is are, are a few of the areas where there's been uh, most progress and and uh, and and would you say that 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 is interesting in the last shall we just say in the last decade? I mean, social entrepreneurship's been around for in, in I guess different forms even before it was called social entrepreneurship. Um, you mentioned the range of uh, I guess funding models and and, and a kind of hybrid and and, and organisational forms that are evolving, which is certainly uh there's considerable momentum there but i'm just wondering are there one or two uh areas uh that you 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 think are noteworthy sure i mean i think there's two things so i think one is that i think there is now a more disciplined language in the space so that when people are pitching to impact investors or talking to foundations um or even traditional sources of capital like venture capital there's kind of a disciplined way of thinking about it. So an example is kind of the theory of change, right? So this is kind of a language um, that actually kind of traces the business activities into systemic change. And it has forced people to not simply look at outputs and confuse them with impact. So I think kind of 20 years ago, you could get away with saying, well, we have an ed tech product and it reaches, you know, 10,000 students and that's our impact. Now, you know, I think you're forced to say, no, 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 just because 10,000 students are using your video game-like app, that doesn't mean you're actually impacting education. You haven't really proven or demonstrated the theory of change. So I think that's very positive. I think there's a lot of opportunities for growth. So I think impact measurement, while there has been a lot of advances, is still very nascent. And if you read a lot of impact reports, either from funds or from the companies themselves, they kind of understand that impact measurement is necessary, but they don't really do a great job of demonstrating impact. And it's not that every organization has to run a randomized control trial, but the fact that we know that there are methodologies available like randomized control trials has kind of upped the ante to show that you actually have to rigorously demonstrate your impact, not just state it exists or impact wash. So I think that's both in advance, but also a huge opportunity for more development in the future. Yeah, it's, it, you talk about the randomized controlled trials, uh, or, or the RCTs, that um, they are quite complex and expensive, aren't they, really? Um, and, um, you know, social innovators are already hampered in, in so many ways trying to work in situations with you know poor infrastructure with difficulty getting clear data you know understanding uh work, working with, with with small budgets and so forth um it's very challenging and if you add on to that the kind of uh uh demand for rigor when it comes to impact 
Um, is there a danger that there is uh, too much is being asked? What do you think is a good way to look at this if you're a, you know, a social innovator? Um, because uh, sometimes I guess, you know, the rules of thumbs and heuristics and things like that, that can provide insight. So I actually think that's a big misconception and it's actually something we kind of teach in our courses and it's part of the book, which is that some randomized control trials can be very expensive. So if you look at the ones done out of JPAL or with the World Bank that you know put a lot of effort and time into tracking people over time and collecting that data, that can be very expensive. Um, there's other randomized control trials, which I've run, which have cost $0.00. And zero cents. Um, it really depends on the situation. And I think increasingly, if you think very thoughtfully about building data infrastructure ahead of time, you can actually build RCTs into your normal business practices. And this is what all the leading technology companies do, Facebook, Google, um, Amazon, Netflix. And I think the social innovation world can learn a lot from them by thinking really kind of carefully in advance of how you either get experimental or quasi-experimental data as part of the normal business practice. So I'll just give you a tangible example of that. So Teach for America, um, they have done both explicit RCTs and quasi-experiments. And one insight they had was, oh, like, let's just in our, um, you know, when we have people apply for Teach for America, put in the legal disclaimer that, like, even if you are rejected from the program, we still have the ability to contact you. And so when they did this, they actually then had a control group, right? They had people who were not admitted to the program. And then they worked with researchers who for free of charge were doing the consulting work for them to look at the impact of their program on the teachers, both who participated in the program and those who didn't. So I think if you're creative, think ahead of the curve in terms of what data infrastructure and legal infrastructure you need to build. You actually don't need to spend money necessarily on an RCT. The data can be embedded in your business processes. Very interesting. Very interesting. So what do you think are, why is, why are, uh, why is that still a challenge for, for many social entrepreneurs? I think that's a great question. I mean, I think, frankly, it's that I think a lot of them don't know it or they're not trained in it. And I, I actually think there are probably established organizations that want to make it think like, oh, you need our help and advice. And there's a lot of barriers and it's sort of a special thing that a certain group of people know and other people don't. Whereas I think I'm all about democratizing it and saying this is something that every organization for certain purposes can build into their business practices. So I think it's just getting the word out. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. So at the heart of that, what are a few key questions that, that uh, a social innovator, a social entrepreneur should be thinking about in order to, to uh, of course, there's so many variety of different conditions and, and, and issues that are being dealt with, but are there a, a kind of a mindset or a way of thinking that you think are just a couple of tips there that, that would be helpful, Neil? Yeah, you know, on the, on the impact measurement front, I mean, I think kind of the biggest question I think people should ask is like, who's my control group, right? So I have a, a business model that I'm claiming has an effect. And like, who, who actually is the baseline that I should be comparing to? Like, what would the world look like if my business wasn't around? And I think kind of having that mindset is really important because I think 
people make a lot of implicit assumptions, which may not be very good. So sometimes what they do is they say, okay, well, I'm going to like have customers. I'm going to see how they changed before and after my intervention. And that's fine. Um, but your control group is basically the group of people, you know, before they got their treatment, um, before they got your intervention. And I think that's okay. But the assumption you're making is that nothing else changed in the world, that it was only your intervention. And that's sometimes a very heroic assumption to make. So it suggests that actually kind of looking for people that represent a control group, like a true, you know, is, is maybe more explicitly better. And that's what Teach for America did, is that they, you know, were, was important to keep track of people who were not in their program or students who were not affected by their teachers. Um, and I think that's just a good question to always be asking, is that uh, what would the world look like if my intervention wasn't in place? And that's really what impact measurement is all about. Yeah, it's very interesting, very interesting. Um, I mean, once upon a time, I guess, like in the world of entrepreneurship, there's a kind of solo uh, a model of uh, solo entrepreneurship, a solo social entrepreneurship of the slightly heroic, you know, uh, founder who, who builds the business and so forth. But Clearly, that's changed now. There's the the, the 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 problems are so complex, and and the way organizations work that you're looking at teams now in many many dimensions and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about any trends you see there? Is that something that you think is uh, is is well understood, and uh, do you think that's an important element in in making uh, building a successful social change organization? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and it really kind of ties to the, the idea of scaling. And like, how does this sector scale? And I mean, if you look at the for-profit sector, they're the pure for-profit, um, not, not socially-minded sector. They just don't have to worry about a lot of this stuff because kind of market mechanisms are great forcing functions for them um, that you ask them, oh, are you measuring your impact? And they're like, well, we've made a lot of money in profits. That's the impact. Um, but if you're actually claiming to kind of be making social impact, I think it's much tougher because the market doesn't capture a lot of that stuff. Additionally, you know, the, their scaling can in the pure for-profit sector happens naturally through things like network effects and as kind of things go viral. Um, in the social sector, sometimes the populations don't naturally allow for scale. And that's why you have a lot of either for-profit social enterprises or nonprofits that just don't really scale up. Like they can affect a certain community, they're helping a small group of people, but they're not really making systemic change. So I think there's kind of two mechanisms of scaling we talk about in the book that I think would be of interest. So one are these public-private partnerships. So government is really, I think, the biggest way to scale social innovation. And really what social entrepreneurs are doing is developing a proof of concept which then government can be attracted to and use their power and might to scale. And then the second is market creation. So it's the idea that oftentimes what social entrepreneurs are trying to do is to demonstrate um, that a market is viable. That's very different than like the solo entrepreneur mindset that you have. It's kind of saying that you want to bring competition in and not be a monopolist. And there's a lot of nice examples of that. So one is D-Light, which was basically a company that started out um, kind of changing cook stoves in Africa to being kind of kerosene to solar. And that has a huge amount of social benefits, both in terms of cost and environment. And 
you know, there's a limited amount of scaling you can do. But what the way they really changed the system was that a bunch of other companies realized that this was a viable business model and entered the space. And then it kind of created an industry and market. So a lot of what I think social entrepreneurs do is to say, hey, you may not have thought there's a market here, but there's actually a lot of money you were leaving on the table because you weren't thinking broadly that this is like a viable group of customers. I think microfinance and microcredit are also a really good example of that. And you can see that there's kind of initial stuff done in microcredit, and it showed that this is a viable market, and then a bunch of competitors entered the space. So a lot of aspects about changing the world are to invite competitors, not shut them out. Well, it's very interesting um, because you touch on a, a couple of points that I suppose I, I haven't really looked at from the other side of the 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 coin, as it were, um, in 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 this series, which is you know public private partnerships have a, a, a very poor track record in some respects as well in terms of shifting risks from uh, into the hands of of, of uh, governments and parts of. Uh, governments that aren't uh, in, in a good position to take on that risk. We've seen certainly in the UK, I mean, there's, there's plenty of examples worldwide of partnerships where, you know, huge sums of money where the commercial partner uh, makes out like a bandit, to put it bluntly. <laughs> um, how, how do you stop that kind of thing? How do you find the right uh, way of doing that? Uh, you know, because in many of these situations, of course, capital is scarce. If you're coming in with, you know, uh, a commercial type perspective, you can often have uh, more power and also the legal and contractual underpinnings of some of these partnerships um, aren't good, aren't fair, should we say? Yeah, that's those are all really good points. They're points well taken. I mean, one other point you didn't mention, which I think is also part of this problem, is that in many of the governments that you would want to partner with in the developing world, there's not strong political institutions, there's corruption, there's a lot of political risk. So I mean, I think those are all fair points. I would say that some of the more successful scaling up had some intermediaries. So you have kind of the big foundations like the Gates Foundation um, and others uh, that can help, I think. They, I mean, they're powerful, they're big, and they can help these small social entrepreneurships get these public partner, uh, private partnerships and maybe avoid some of the problems that you're talking about. But I'm not going to pretend that, you know, your points are not valid and that that that's not a concern. It, it definitely is. The other question, I guess, as well, is um, is to do with this question of marketization. And uh, again, I suppose you get it, it, it can get a bit ideological here as well. But the degree to which you know uh, we've certainly seen again in in, in Europe and uh, you know uh, in general and and certainly in 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 certain sectors in the global south as well. That the question of uh, paying for public services, um, or you know, in some kind of sense, privatizing them or making them a, a commercial proposition, um, you know, has has uh, not worked very well either. Um, and this question of of bringing a market of of you know uh, bringing co a commercial uh, and you know and financial rationale into an area that before was seen as a public service. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, have you, what, what are your thoughts around that tension? Yeah, we've talked about it in the book a bit. I mean, I will push back on that a little bit because I think in the global South, you know, there is this thing that I think what we in the West or the developed world think of as public services, it just is not the same thing. And that 
kind of private sector um, replacements are actually do make people's lives tangibly a lot better. And I think it is easy to say, okay, well, you know, we just need to have a big social safety net. And I just think that a lot of countries are just not quite there yet. And the private sector is the bridge. And I'll just give you one example. So if you look at education in Africa, um, you know, a lot of what social entrepreneurs are doing in Africa is setting up private schools. And you would say maybe, oh, well, like that's not a great solution because you're basically putting market mechanisms into what should be a social sector public good. But the existing public schools are just like not doing a good job. Like there's a lot of absenteeism of teachers. Um, the, the test scores are very low, et cetera. And actually the private sector is producing educational services, sometimes at lower cost. So sometimes the public schools actually do have fees. And so the private sector can actually undercut those fees in these, with these private schools. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, like, yes, I think the ultimate goal is to build strong public infrastructure. But um, I, I think that the private sector is, is providing immediate on the ground solutions um, that are, are actually going to lead to growth and development. Um, better public institutions, better rules of the game, better democracies that are going to result in a lot of these things in the long run. So I think your complaints are like, yeah, like, why are we doing this? And I would say that sometimes you have to do this for one to five years to build the foundation for strong democracies that are 20 to 30 years down the line. Yeah, no, very good. Uh, very interesting. No, it's a, a question to be asked. Um, and thank you for that. Um, it's, 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 it's an issue to just consider. The other, another area, which I think is quite interesting, and I don't want to be uh, focusing on the just the downsides, but the, the, there are questions, I suppose. And it is interesting, and, and talk about this, the, I guess, uh, fertility or the, the, the the fluidity and the development of different kinds of models that we're seeing emerging, you know, and you say this, you know, originally not for profit or the for profit and then the kind of hybrids and now you've got the B cores and, 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 and so forth. Um, clearly, um, you know, hybrids, hybrids uh, can bring great uh, advantages and uh, great flexibility in terms of funding and, and ability to grow. It also can be more challenging, I guess, to, to, to operate, to, to keep, uh, I, you know, it, I, I, some of the people that I've spoken to find it challenging to try and keep a, you know, a not-for-profit and a for-profit and to be able to kind of distinguish between them and, and think about those and keep them both in the, the organizational culture at the same time. Um, I was wondering maybe if you could talk what your sense of that is, the challenge there and how, how companies or how organizations can deal with that. And I suppose there's also a, another uh, challenge there, which is, uh, I think, been well recognized, is, uh, you know, the potential uh, for, for, you know, chasing the profits for an organization that might start out with more of a social mission over time, migrating into the, you know, the higher value segments, the higher profit segments, and how to manage that uh, so that you, you know, you, 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 you don't veer away from your social mission, as it were. That's okay. This is an amazing question. It's like a very complex question. So I'll try to, there's a lot in your questions. I'll try to unpack a few, few things, because I think it's a great question. So Okay, I think first we want to think about what are the problems of a pure nonprofit model? Because I think, yes, there's going to be issues of mission drift, but you have to compare it to what we were doing before. 
So I think the challenge of a nonprofit model, especially when you kind of talk to nonprofit founders, is that they're spending all of their time fundraising, and that actually also can compromise the mission because you're not actually spending time developing products and services. And so if you don't have a business model, you know, and you don't have earned revenue, that has problems for mission as well. So I just want to kind of put that out there. Okay, now when you talk about the for-profit sector and what lead, what can actually prevent mission drift, et cetera, um, I would say that having kind of like a good independent board of directors is really key um, and not having kind of a board of yes people that are just going to do whatever the founder says, because I think that can actually lead to a lot of temptation. Um, and I would say, okay, so that's kind of one solution. The other thing is, is that, you know, sometimes mission drift is not the worst thing in the world um, and that it actually can put pressure on existing for-profit businesses where social good is not even part of the mission. So I'll give you a tangible example. So there is a company called Chime, which is a fintech kind of financial services, um, financial inclusion company. And, you know, I think they're transitioning to being more of a standard financial services company. Um, Now, on the one hand, you could say that's mission drift. Um, and they're you know seeking higher end segments of customers, more traditional kind of yuppie customers, young people who want want to be outside the traditional banking sector. But if you look at what they've done, they've actually put a lot of pressure and change on the traditional financial services sector. So they were really pushing a lot for no fee overdrafts, um, just like kind of reducing fees across the board. And you look at what the big banks that have had a lot of deposits, the you know, Chase's, Bank of America's, they, they're basically changing all their policies too, that they're really reducing their fees, putting overdraft protection and insurance, and they're kind of copying all these smaller players. And so I would say like, yeah, maybe the, the, the missions of some of these smaller financial disruptors is changing. But overall, if you look at the system, financial services is just much more equitable than it was five years ago. So I mean I would say that you know like there even as missions changes the system can still be improving. No, it's very interesting because I I wanted to get onto that question of the ways in which um, the the I guess the the mindsets so at least to the very least uh, of innovation and social uh, and and ways of hybrids of just thinking about profit and non-profit or profit and social and all of that kind of a mix, which is, you know, at the heart of a you know, innovative, you know, social innovation systems and so forth. How do you, I mean, you, you talked about already in, in, in the financial services area, but presumably this is also impacting larger organizations and larger corporations. And this is a really important question because we've got this, you know, this, uh, the, the major, uh, well, uh, ESG, we just call it for the, for the moment, uh, initiatives and large organizations needing to, um, you know, become more or ESG oriented, just to, I guess, to put it that way. Um, and, and, and do you see this as a fertile area? It definitely is for a few reasons. Um, I mean, I think the big thing is, is that where are the invest, what do the investors care about? I think that's like a big issue. So it's the, you know, the Black Rocks, the State Streets, um, the pension funds, the foundations, all, you know, kind of where the sources of capital are. And you just see that a lot of these big players care more about these ESG issues. And if you look at like a pension fund, 
a lot of the workers, they just don't want to invest their money in companies that are damaging the planet. You know, um, that's, that's just where it is. And the fiduciaries have to take this into account. And so I see stuff changing. I would say the main problem right now is that there's not much standardization, and that can lead to a lot of greenwashing and impact washing. So if you read proxy statements from the last two years across the globe, every single proxy statement is talking more about these issues, but they talk about them in different ways. Some of them are very fuzzy, some of them are hard, and they actually provide a lot of data. And maybe where we're heading that the investor community has to push on is to have more standardized metrics, just like we have for different accounting standards. So you know, if an accounting board says you have to report how much carbon you're using using these methods that are standardized, and if you don't report that accurately, you're subject to fraud, all those kind of things that we do in standard accounting, that's where we have to head to. Because right now, if you kind of let the companies themselves report what they want to report, that's going to lead to a lot of non-standardization, a lot of fudging. Um, we, we, have, we trust in bodies that enforce standards. And just like they enforce standards that this is what EBITDA means, this is what cost of goods sold means, you want to do similar things on the ESG front. Yeah, and 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 it, well, at least in the United States now, and in some dimensions, the SEC seems to be you know becoming more vocal on on, on some of these questions, and that's quite a change um, for sure. Although it's there's still, as you say, a, a lot more to be done, um, and it's 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 a really important area. Um, you mentioned this question of investors, and I'm wondering what your take is on um, on 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 how how investors. Um, the lay of the land with respect to investors, because I haven't interviewed various uh, folk from, from uh, I guess, kind of foundation world and so forth, um, who talk a lot about various different kind of blended finance and one thing and another and and, and the availability of capital. And then others uh, who, well, in, in certain sectors, at least, or certain areas, are quite skeptical about the amount of money that is actually available, really, in terms of uh, that aren't looking for that are looking for lower rates of return, shall we say, um, which which matters, um, you know, which I guess is money for for higher risk type operations and so forth. What is your sense or of of how how things stand at the moment with respect to impact investment? I mean, I understand the skepticism, but I just see a lot of bottom-up movement. And a lot of that um, reason why you know it's all return-focused is that there's structural reasons, too. So, for example, in U.S., there's just a lot of fiduciary rules. So, especially around pensions, where a lot of the money is. Um, like, we have a rule in the U.S. called ERISA, which basically says that for pensions, you, know, you, you can't really do impact investing um, because that's not going to be the fiduciary duty. But I mean, that's just a rule. Like there could be, uh, and there's been kind of different interpretations of that rule as administrations have changed. And I just see that if there's a worker movement to say that there's other things beyond return we care about, if you're looking out for our fiduciary duty, there's going to be mechanisms for that. Um, you know, I'll give you another example where like university foundations, they produce, they provide a lot of money in this space. And like the students and alumni, they're putting a lot of pressure to like divest from fossil fuels. And that's obviously like not solely return oriented. And, you know, I, I just think there's going to be a lot of pressure to put other stuff besides risk and return into the calculations of what it means to be a good fiduciary. 
And this is going to come from bottom-up people, from workers, students, other kinds of stakeholders who increasingly care about these issues. Um, I would also say if you look at kind of these big firms, you know, TPG, JP Morgan, the impact investing stuff is a good marketing technique. And they are building funds. And the capital is small right now, but it's increasing over time. And I think it is going to become a good marketing function to say, here are financial products that also look at social impact in terms of risk and return. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess ties in with what you're saying as well about the, the more visibility and standards around measurement and so forth. Um, I, I guess, what about the cost to set up? Because I guess there's so many technology platforms now around. Is there uh, a, a greater possibility to use existing technologies and maybe to lower costs to get to build up the, 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 you know, your organization? Or is that something that you look at at all and think about? Because I haven't thought that much about that. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that like a lot of these places that I've worked with and talked to who have kind of set up these measurement practices, I mean, there obviously is initial investment of cost, but it, it's surprising like how quickly it amortizes. Um, you know, TPG is a good example. So, you know, they, I think, take measurement really seriously. Um, they have like a model called the impact multiple of money where they, how they kind of assess impact investments. And I think it did take a lot of time to set up and cost. But I think once you invest in those initial fixed costs, they're very reputable and they, they amortize quite nicely. So, I mean, I just don't see that as a huge issue. I think that the yeah. big thing yeah. is getting the the cap, the political capital to say that this is important to do those initial investments early. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. It's all really interesting stuff. Yeah. What about this question of, of, of uh, we talked a little about public-private partnerships, but partnering with, with large organizations. So for a social entrepreneur to work with, um, you know, a large corporation, for example. And um, clearly there are uh, major challenges just uh, by its very nature, the scale of a large organization, the way it operates, its time frame, you know, all those kind of things in a small uh, startup and so forth. But you would imagine that that is a fertile area in the sense that, uh, you know, for many large corporations, to become more uh, sustainable is in in large part also a cultural issue, you know, to get people thinking in 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 different ways, to different values, and also to uh, maintain some kind of entrepreneurial verve as well. And 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 you know, these are the kind of organisations, these social entrepreneurs, these social innovators that have this in spades. Um, can you talk a little bit about that uh, and, and maybe some advice in terms of how uh, social entrepreneurs, uh, social innovators can think about this or any, any insights on what you've seen here? That's actually a really great point. And uh, you know, we haven't mentioned it in our conversation thus far, but kind of the big organizations um, are, the big multinationals are great partners as well. They have the ability to scale and they also have production infrastructure. So, I mean, a lot of people don't think of this as social innovation, but if you really kind of strip it away, it was, which is kind of COVID vaccines. And so, like, you know, the, the story of COVID vaccines is that you have kind of these small startups with a technology, and they don't really have the physical infrastructure to, to scale and to go through things like clinical trials, which is just so, so complex and difficult. 
And then you have like the big players like Pfizer, which, you know, maybe don't have the, the innovation. They're kind of big incumbents. But when they kind of come together, they can kind of use their relative strengths um, to make real profound social change. And there's other models of that, too. So, you know, uh, Danone International, kind of the food company, they've done kind of partnerships with NGOs to do products in developing economies. And, and I think the goal is to set these up as win-wins, to say, okay, what is the social entrepreneur bringing to the table? They're bringing the fact that they're nimble, they're innovative, they know the local markets. And the big companies know that this is like a very good way that they can kind of have good branding, good PR, but not invest huge portions of their operations into this, right? They can kind of do these as spin-offs or joint ventures. Um, so I think there's actually a huge amount of opportunity there. And you don't have the problem that you were talking about earlier with potential corruption with government and things like that. So yeah, I think that's a really nice opportunity for social entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I guess um, there does seem to be uh, a concentration, a number of, of social entrepreneurship networks, um, which are quite uh, embedded, quite wide and quite powerful. And I guess if you get within one of those or you get the support of one of those, you you know, it, it's, it's hugely uh, helpful. But, you know, not everyone's going to be able to do that. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts about the kinds of support that uh, social entrepreneurs, social innovators can get or advice um, because uh, particularly in the early days, and, and indeed, it, it's it's enormously challenging. I mean, one thing I've noticed, especially as I've been discussing the book with different people, is that there's so much energy of small communities kind of bringing up, you know, kind of bubbling up that, you know, yeah, like maybe it's hard to get with one of the, like the huge names, uh, you know, the Sir Ronald Cohen's or or with the, the echoing greens, like, you know, if you're a social entrepreneur, but there's so many small communities in different geographies that are popping up. I, I just think that this is such an exciting area and people shouldn't be obsessed with like name brand. Um, I just think it's very different than the for-profit entrepreneurship space where it's like, oh, we have to get Series A funding from a cell or Kleiner or something like that to get our name on the map. I, mean, I just think it's very different. I think it's way more democratized. I think there are smaller pockets of communities that I'm just learning about every day um, that I just don't think that should be a barrier to people, um, that they're somehow not in the club or something like that. Can you talk a bit more about scaling again, Neil? Um, you, you don't generally see social change organizations grow to anything like the kind of scale we've seen in for-profit sector. Um, and maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe there's different ways of working. There's different ways of operating. Should social change organizations always be thinking about scaling? I'd be interested in getting your thoughts if you could talk a little bit more about scaling. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really like telling people what they should do or what gives their life meaning. So, I mean, if what, give, if what your theory of change is, is to, um, you know, address the needs of a small group of people in a small geography, that is changing people's lives for the better. And it's not my place to say that's what you should or shouldn't be doing. But if your theory of change is to change an entire system, that does require scale. But I think it's a long process. So there's an organization which, you know, they started by buying a single hotel, like kind of a decrepit, dilapidated hotel, you know, renovating it to provide, um, you know, a homeless population housing in, the, in a small area. 
And you know, they could have stopped right there, but their theory of change was about systemic change. So they used that and they kept saying, okay, well, that this isn't actually solving the system. And then they grew into kind of a monitoring network where they kind of monitored homeless people so they could like place them into housing. And now they got a huge grant in order to do policy change because it fundamentally requires what are these localities' policies around homelessness. And you know, I would say that. Uh, if you want to scale, that's great. If you don't want to scale, you don't have to. But if you want to scale, I think all of these things, thinking about market creation, policy intervention, working with multinationals and big foundations, working with the government are pretty crucial parts to that. Yeah. Um, and I think one last thing that we talked about in the book, you know, we haven't mentioned is, is that kind of finding ways to scale to the missing middle. So microcredit is a good example of this, where you kind of start in kind of the low end of the credit worthiness market, but then finding ways to then expand into higher levels of credit worthiness is just great. And I just think there's a lot of middle ground consumers that are just not tapped by a lot of these social entrepreneurs. That's a missing opportunity. And just, you know, in the global, like we have a view of what middle class means in, in the developed world. That's very, very different of what the missing middle means in the global South. I mean, I think this is the group of people who, you know, this suggests are very underserved and actually are a, a means to scale if people just have the right business models. So these are people that are just not quite in what we would consider the developed middle class, but, but there's they're also not the subject of philanthropy and a lot of these foundations and the World Bank and things like that. I, I, and I, I guess just linked to that, uh, in your experience, does does whether you have a uh, the, the the vision of your scale impact the availability of finance um, in, in your experience? And I guess a question that has come up before is that uh, um, the potential to pressurize uh, within a system, shall we say, for profit ventures when there really isn't a for profit. Uh, capacity or, or potential. Um, so the, I guess this just links back to that question of impact investor, the investors and, and, and the kind of ways in which they influence these things. I don't know whether you, you've seen uh, trends or, or have any observations on either of those. I mean, this is a huge problem we talk about it in the book. So like, if you want a for-profit venture, you basically go to the top Sandhill Road firms and the top VC firms and you basically have to explain to them why you have a unicorn, like a billion dollar company, like what the market size is. And they're not going to invest unless they think that you have a unicorn. And that's because their business model is they need to make, you know, 50 bets and 49 will fail and one is a unicorn. So that's like the only way you get in the door is like, do you have a billion dollar company? Now, if you're a social entrepreneur, they're just not going to pay attention to you because a lot of these business models are just not unicorns. That's just not what they are. But impact investors and new sources of capital might listen to you. And if you want to get their attention, you have to really think hard about your theory of change, how you're going to scale, because they do care about that kind of stuff. Um, and I think their version is that they're not looking for a billion-dollar company, but they might look for like how you would scale to reach a certain number of people. And so you also need to kind of tell the story and think about your theory of change and actually think theoretically what your mechanism for scaling is. Um, any other areas that you think you'd like to highlight from the, the, the research uh, that you brought together in the book, Neil? 
Sure. I mean, I think most of our conversation has been about kind of the business model side, which obviously is very fascinating and thinking about corporate strategy. But the, the book also has a lot of chapters on leadership development and, um, you know, characteristics of, of social entrepreneurial leaders, what makes that different from the private sector. Um, and I think those chapters might be really fascinating to your readership as well. What are some of your insights here, Neil? Yeah, I, mean, I think kind of some of the skill sets from kind of for-profit entrepreneurship don't really translate that well to social entrepreneurship. So, you know, kind of the ability of the, the um, disruption and move fast and break things, like that's just not that great for the social sector because you have kind of populations that if you break things, it'd actually be really detrimental to them. Um, especially if you're looking at sensitive areas like healthcare, um, uh, education, mental health, um, environment, a lot of things we talk about. Uh, and so I think kind of some of the other traits we talk about in the book include like resilience as well as empathy. So there's a whole chapter on design thinking. So we have, you know, design thinking was kind of a big idea that came out of Stanford and Silicon Valley, um, places like IDEO. So a lot of people say, can we, you know, have design thinking training? We don't have a way to scale that, but we have a chapter in the book about design thinking and this kind of very famous class called Extreme um, Design for Extreme Affordability, which tries to walk through the empathy process of learning from the customers, not necessarily using the standard lean startup methodologies, but how you iterate, learn from customer experiences. Um, so I think that will all be really valuable to, to people listening um, to that, kind of think about how design thinking is used differently in the for-profit space and the social space. Can you just elaborate a little bit there what it would look like in a uh, you know in a social organization design thinking? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think on one thing that they can teach in the extreme course, the design for extreme affordability, is that you know a, a standard lean um, startup would say, okay, you build your minimum viable product, you get it out there, and you kind of keep iterating. But having a minimal viable product in the social space can be really bad. Um, so let's say you have an ed tech product and it kind of actually starts harming students. Well, you probably want to go a little bit slower. And then additionally, I think instead of letting the market give you feedback constantly, it's probably better to do a lot of in-depth in-person research. So what they kind of require the students to do in the class is to actually go into the communities, do a lot of interviewing, et cetera, um, and like learning about the culture of the people and understand what kind of cultural elements would cause them to uptake the product or not uptake it. Um, so, I mean, the book gives examples, for example, of, of social entrepreneurs that learned cultural and religious practices that were going to impede. And if they had just kind of gone paternalistically and said, oh, like you have to use this product, it wouldn't have been successful because they weren't attuned to the cultural practices of the area. So I think the argument is to go much slower and to do a lot of in-depth interviewing ahead of time uh, to learn to basically design the products with the user in mind, rather than saying, oh, well, this is the good idea. You should just use the product as we see fit. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Yeah. I think that's not a point that uh, I, I necessarily thought about or have come across so, so, so uh, made so explicitly that, 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 you know, the difference between uh, using these ideas in a for-profit and not-for-profit and, um, and as you say, you know, if you start to uh, create some kind of uh, organizations in, in, in providing some kind of social 
uh, or environmental support, you know, people rely on you, you know, and uh, you get commitments and, you know, you, you're solving uh, social issues. And, you know, uh, it, it's, 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 it's not like another, you know, food company or fast food company or something like that going under. It, it, it has huge ramifications in, 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 in the communities. That's exactly right. If your you know, food delivery app fails, someone doesn't get their French fries or whatever. If, if your mental health app fails, it can have serious consequences. Yeah, yeah. So and looking forward, um, any other uh, things on the horizon that you think are interesting that, that, that you think might impact the, the, the way the you know, social innovators work and operate? Clearly, we talked about the general context where, you know, these issues are, you know, existentially important now <laughs> in terms of climate, at least in terms of, you know, these environmental questions, which means that, you know, uh, new ways of thinking, new, new, new ways of problem solving are absolutely de rigueur. I just wondering, any other uh, things that you see on the horizon that are, are, are going to have a big impact? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think kind of this has already happened, but it's only going to get more extreme, which is, the, the consumer and stakeholders have way more power than they've ever had, you know, like since the modern economy really started. And I think social media is like just a big driver of this. And so, you know, as you scale and get bigger, you just become more of a target on social media and have to be much more responsive to stakeholder interests. And they just have much more power than they used to. And I think smart managers are able to anticipate stakeholder concerns and understand their power and ability and not just dismiss them um, because they have as much power as kind of the media used to have with this, these new forms of social media to really kind of galvanize groups and stakeholders against organizations and companies. And so it, it's putting a lot of pressure on companies to be socially minded. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. So the book's out now. What's next for you, Neil? You're working on any particular research projects or anything that's uh, getting your attention right now? Yeah, so, you know, I'm actually writing a, a, another book um, that's kind of my own personal book. So I actually have one just coming out on kind of values-based leadership and how you lead organizations with your values. And I'm actually writing a new one on um, corporate self-regulation. And so how companies go beyond government regulations but how that also might forestall needed government regulations. Um, so, you know, well, examples that, that, include... That's a, a hugely thorny question. It's not a, not a, the R word is not a word that uh, um, many corporations <laughs> like. And uh, it's a hugely important question because uh, you often find that uh, some of the policies that are being put forward uh, to deal with, you know, environmental questions and so forth, on their own, stand alone and sound, you know, quite plausible, but they're often embedded in a uh, kind of binary uh, kind of model, which says we do this and, th and therefore we don't do and a whole series of regulatory issues. Um, so it's a very, very interesting question indeed. I look forward to uh, seeing your uh, output there. And um, thank you so much for your time today, Neil. Awesome. Thanks for the great questions and conversation. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.